Welcome back to another episode of With Sonar. I'm Luke Velasco. We are here live in Chattanooga, Tennessee at F3. It's 2023. And we have Kyle Taylor back with us. Yeah, welcome back, right? Back to the old stomping grounds. Those true fans of With Sonar know that uh, it was me and you for a couple of years. It was. And then you decided to move to Tampa. See you later. Yeah. But you're back now. We're back. We're back in Chattanooga. No, it's great. It's a good time. It's been a great conference so far. There's a lot more content to happen. Of course, this is day one. We'll have the JB Hunt party tonight, which will be a great time. If there's any TI fans in the house, that'll be the time to catch him. Yeah, he, I think he's on his farewell tour. He announced actually on social media. He's got one more album coming out, and then he's going to be saying sayonara. So might be the last time you get a chance to see him. Could be the last time. And of all places, at a Freight Waves uh, conference. <laughs> yeah, um, but we we've got we've got a good uh, we've got a good show today. So we're, today we're going to be talking a lot about the impacts of nearshoring and reshoring and what that's going to be doing for the freight markets. Mm-hmm. And uh, what better person to join us than um, Dave Kiesling, VP of Transportation at Kenco Group? Dave, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, I got here. We go. Thanks for having me. Great to be here again, and uh, I'm glad to always get to sit in when uh, I get a chance to see you guys. So thank you. Absolutely. And Chattanooga's home for you. Chattanooga is home now for me, so it uh, was a quick uh, walk, six, seven blocks to get here to the convention center. So, And I, I'm glad that somebody ordered the weather, weather that we're going to have this week, right? It is going to be 80, what, 2, 83 today? Looks like it's going to be 80. Didn't know how to dress. Yeah. It's 55 in the morning, and it's 80 in the midday. Yeah. So it should be a rocking party tonight, right? Yeah. Yep. It'd be a great time tonight. But anyways, um, Dave, give uh, give give us kind of a 30-second intro on on just kind of you know, who you are, where, where you got to where you are today, kind sure. of, you know, what's been your, what's been your experience in logistics? Sure. So I started my journey in LTO, um, in uh, Northeast Ohio, working for roadway. So RIP, uh, YRC, um, but, uh, spent several years really on the warehousing side of the business and distribution. And as roadway became caliber logistics, caliber became FedEx, um, managed some big box retail distribution operations, and then uh, went to work for a smaller manufacturer, and that's when transportation started, right? And uh, did some offshoring, some nearshoring, both South America and in, in China. And then uh, really the last 10 years have focused purely on the transportation side of the business and all things supply chain related, but focused on transportation. Now we're, it's kind of a hot topic right now, right? A lot of folks are talking about nearshoring and reshoring and, and what that means. I guess before we get into all that and what the potential impact even is, let, let's just define, like when we say nearshoring and reshoring, what, what does that mean? Well, I heard friendshoring this morning. So <laughs> I was like, what's friendshoring? Oh, that's when you, you source or you, with a friend or, or somebody that, you know, you're acquainted with in some way. I was like, okay. We, we could all use some more friendshoring. Yeah, right, right. So. Uh, but, you know, I think what you think about nearshoring or reshoring is the outsource has already happened, right? So the, the move of manufacturing, production, assembly has already taken place somewhere else, whether that's in Europe and in Asia. Um, and now what we're talking about is what, what you've seen in the results of COVID, what you're seeing in terms of global impact on the waterways. There's disruptions that are taking place and we're saying, whoa, wait a minute, we, we put too much or we have too much lead time in our supply chain. Uh, from a transit standpoint, from a disruption standpoint. So we need to bring some of that capability or some of that manufacturing, you know, either back to the U.S. or, you know, back to, to North America in some ways to uh, to reduce the disruptions that post-COVID really kind of brought to light. Are, are there certain industries that this is going to 
you know, make sense more for like we talk about retail or manufacturing or certain commodity types? Like, because it probably doesn't make sense for everything, right? Yeah, I, I think, you know, apparel is going to be one of those areas where I, I doubt you're going to see a lot of uh, reshoring of apparel. But when you think about industrial good manufacturing, um, when you think about certain types of electronics, right, where maybe there's a component of that electronic that needs to have a smart, you know, card or a, a smart chip, um, and, and then certainly, you know, durable goods, right? Um, we see a lot of that happening today where those container rates from two years ago, right? Everybody still remembers I had to pay ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a container just to get my goods over here. Um, those bulkier items or those um, one and done type purchases, even if you do that through a retailer, um, we're seeing a lot of that, you know, kind of come back this way uh, in this direction. When I say that, I mean, you know, really central uh, America and, and Mexico. Now, Kyle, you and I, we were talking not long ago, and you're working on a project with uh, with some folks right now, and they're they're doing a lot of stuff pretty far south of the border, right? What what are you hearing in kind of as you talk with a lot of logistics service providers? You know, how does how does nearshoring change the conversations that you're having? Well, yeah. So, so we're in a hyper competitive environment. So nearshoring or, you know, let's just say having an expertise in Mexico now all of a sudden becomes another value add to a lot of companies. And I mean, we saw Mexico is now uh, U.S.'s number one trade partner in, in North America. So seeing that kind of milestone hit, it opens up a lot of people. So there are a lot of conversations to should we throw our hat in the ring? And on top of that, with maybe their primary customers coming to their logistics providers, so like a retailer coming and saying, hey, we're going to be bringing a new warehouse into, you know, Mexico, just outside of Mexico City. Can you support me? And, and so a lot of the people I'm talking to now is really just trying to set up the infrastructure because like you guys have a, been doing this for such a long time that getting new and like all of a sudden now doing cross borders, like if you don't know what you're doing, you can get screwed. And, and so, you know, primarily it's the infrastructure that I'm seeing a lot of people come to us for. They have a big prominent East Coast uh, rail line that's trying to put a service offering into Mexico City. And they're trying to see, does that, do they, are they going to see enough uh, truckload conversion into intermodal to be able to support that thesis? And, and so that's where we're seeing a lot of really just a foundational infrastructure. And, but tell me a little bit about how you guys have thought about it, because you clearly have warehouses, you have a, a lot of different service offerings. So you've had to have been thinking about this long before, you know, this nearshoring was really a thing. Sure. Yep. Yeah. And I think some of it starts with our distribution network, right? And you look at where our multi-client facilities are. So outside of Louisville, Kentucky, um, outside of Dallas, Texas are two big multi-client facilities for us. And so we picked those um in some ways because of how they can cover the U.S., right? So Louisville, very central to cover both East Coast, Midwest. Um, and obviously, um, outside of Dallas, you're talking about less than a one-day trip from Laredo, right, from the border to, to be at Dallas. And and then from Dallas to West Coast, East Coast is a two-day lane, right? So um, so I think network is part of it. Um, partnership is the other part of it, right? Um, you know, one of the biggest differences that we see um, when you're bringing from, let's say, from Mexico, versus uh, the Far East is the infrastructure that's needed for the truck to get loaded at origin. When you bring it in from you know, China, it's an ocean container. Half the time that ocean container gets immediately set on a train. That train ends up in Chicago and you know you, the, the infrastructure is there to move those goods. 
A lot of people expect that, hey, if I'm manufacturing in Mexico, I'm going to put it on the truck that's going to deliver it to the DC, right? Or, right. or it's going to deliver it to the customer's DC. Um, so the infrastructure that's needed uh, to clear customs, I was in Laredo uh, several months ago and the, you know, the non, uh, let's say, uh, pull, free pass, right? The non right. Uh, easy pass lay was four miles long, right? To cross the border. So having a partner who has the infrastructure to do the inspection on the Mexico side uh, and to have that flow through. And you, most people don't know this, but those drivers, they don't then go into the U.S., right? There's a very small subset of drivers that are just back and forth, back and forth, back and right. forth and bringing those those trailers. So having the presence in Laredo itself, right, or in El Paso or McAllen or wherever you're, you're crossing, yeah. um, you know, even San Diego out there, having that ability to to drop that trailer, repower it with a U.S.-based driver, or vice versa, drop that trailer, repower it with a Mexico-based driver is, is critical. Yeah, and that's, so maybe go a little bit deeper. Like, I just got into this cross-border kind of environment, and I never realized that you have one truck pick up to border or cross dock, and then have maybe someone who actually crosses the border with it, and then someone who actually, you know, read uh, powers, like you said, and then takes it to their final TC. Is that historically how that Kind of egg, egg that's chicken. how it, yeah that's historically how it works and that's why you see this is a you know this is for bigger players right so there's trailer interchange agreements there's you know larger carriers providing a lot of that capacity where you know two years ago when there was what 50 ships waiting to get unloaded in la every small mom and pop carrier every owner operator they could go to la they get a load tomorrow right and they could pick it off a load board and, and move that out of one of those cross docks or, or flow through center. So the 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 type of carrier that's providing that capacity as we move forward, we think is going to continue to be a carrier with a larger group of, uh, of assets. So there are some barriers to entry uh, associated with or some challenges to being a partner to, to make sure that you have the capacity to, to handle this new kind of reshoring activity. If you have to kind of prioritize here, right, obviously there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to get built out, right, and um, as, as folks continue to kind of figure out what those challenges are as we scale um, at the cross-border, what is, from a prioritization perspective, what infrastructure needs to get, like, built out tomorrow? Tomorrow Security. Being Security. I mean, I think, you know, the number one thing that we think about is, you know, are we making sure that we're keeping the border safe, right? And I know that's a hot topic, and I don't want to go down the, the political side of it. But from a security standpoint, uh, you know, is the if the truck is being loaded in Mexico, is it arriving in the U.S.? Did it detour? You know, was there a reason that it could have uh, been stolen if it's a high-value goods? So I think security is number one, which then drives, you know, the, the adoption of some technology. In fact, you know, some of the providers that are here today that, that have load securing or load monitoring technology, you're going to see that, uh, I think, expand. And you're going to see those that allow you to reuse it uh, to expand. You know, we were talking right before we jumped on is, hey, if I can put a, a pallet tracker on every trailer that leaves the manufacturing plant in Mexico, I'm in a closed loop if I'm the U.S. distribution center, let's say, in Atlanta, right? So I'm going to get all of those I'm going to know where my freight is all the time, right. and then I'm going to package those back up, send them back down to the plant in Mexico, and have them reuse those. So I think security is number one. And then I think number two is reducing the frictions of the customs activity. Um, there's still a lot of activity that happens with customs, 
And you mentioned, we talked a lot about truckload, but LTL, you know, the ability to put 20 LTL shipments on uh, a, a trailer in, let's say, Monterey, Mexico, have it cross the border, have it go all the way to Chicago before it gets hits its first break. Right. Um, there's some things that have to happen there, right? Because it's, uh, is it 20 individual shipments? Is it one consolidated shipments? What are the, you know, what are the requirements from a customer standpoint? What What's going to increase efficiency? Is it improving um you know transloading transdocking or is it is it scaling up carriers who can actually take something from mexico to anywhere in the u.s and vice versa probably a little bit of everything um and again having been in laredo a few months ago that workforce is is uh finite so Scaling up like Southern California in terms of a workforce, and as you saw over the last 30 years, you know, it was Long Beach, and it was, uh, I forget what the city is between Long Beach and Ontario, but, you know, the the growth of moving out uh, from the port, uh, you just don't have the same population in, in those border towns to support a lot of cross-stocking, transloading. So anything that can predict where that inventory needs to go, right? Anything that can speed up from an intermodal standpoint, hey, if I can get on in Mexico City, if I can get on 200 miles out of Mexico City, if the last stop of that train is in Monterey and gets loaded there, and if that train can move without stopping and sitting down and it goes all the way to St. Louis or all the way to Louisville, which is where we believe we're gonna see a lot of this volume start to come to, um, those are the efficiencies that'll, that'll come. What about like okay? So we talk about we talk about the the border, right? Obviously near Shorn, but for for a lot of your everyday shippers, for your carriers, for your brokers out there, right? What you know? How is this going to impact them, and what can they even do to prepare? Like if I if I'm a freight, uh, there's a lot of freight brokers here, right? A lot of freight PLs yeah. here. So from from their perspective, do they need to think about near Shorn? If so, how how can they even be a part of the conversation? Yeah, I, I think. One would be when you look at your carrier base, if you're a freight broker or in our case, we're a managed trans provider, right? And a freight broker. But, you know, when we look at our carrier base, we want to make sure we have the right partners who have trailers. Because at the end of the day, it's just going to be a trailer intensive business where when you think about importing, you know, the ocean carriers or even private companies, they own 10,000 40 foot boxes, right? Or, or whatever. So, in some cases, it's got a little bit of the feel of the intermodal guys, right? Because got JB Hunt out there buying additional boxes, help crew. You know, a lot of people are making investments in more more equipment so that they can handle a larger percentage of the business. So I think having the right partner, because again, the driver that's going to pick up a load in Mexico and deliver it in the U.S. is probably coming from a carrier that has 50, 100, you know, 200 power units. It's not those twenty-five thousand carriers that we've all, you know, onboarded the last couple of years using some of the great technology that we, you know, see here about compliance and onboarding. But those owner-operators, those two to three truck folks, they just won't be able to help from a capacity standpoint because of the way the the transition happens over the border. Yeah, that makes me think about, like, how do you, you got to have, like, boots on the ground out in Mexico almost because, like, you don't have just, like, a that load board or whatever one two three load board like whatever where you could just say all right well i don't have capacity today where can i go find this company or like is it trial and error is there a list like how so there are some lists yeah. uh there is a little trial and error and um 
you know, we've been very strategic in who we partnered with, um, and we've leveraged automotive. So we don't do a lot in the automotive space, but we partnered with carriers who have been doing automotive and delivering to assembly plants in both directions, right? Coming, you know, uh, in process parts coming from Mexico into the U.S. and vice versa, you know, parts that have been coming from the U.S. into Mexico. So, you know, and having freight forwarder relationships with a lot of freight forwarders because to, you know, freight forwarders get backed up too, right? And cross border or cross dock locations get backed up. So you need to have more than one. You cannot be single sourced uh, right. in, in your solution. And, and nobody expects you to. I think that's the one thing about that we've learned about the cross border is it's okay to have three or four partners, or in this case, we have more than that. But um, nobody feels like, oh, well, you went out and partnered with them. That means we're no longer, you know, partners. Who, in terms of investment, how does nearshoring change investment? Whether that's in technology, people, infrastructure, right? Where, how how does it change investment strategies over the next, you know, so many years? I can scratch on your crystal ball there for a minute. That's a great question. I, you know, with the recent events of you know convoy in the marketplace, and you think about investment, I guess I would answer that one way. as a service provider, I might answer it, you know, slightly a, a different way. But um, I think if you're if you're a financial investor, right, private equity, or, or you're in the financial market and you're looking at, hey, you know, where do I want to capitalize and take advantage of this? I think it's with those providers who already have a foothold or who can articulate a clear, clear strategy uh, of how they're going to deal with the inefficiencies that are there, right, and the friction that's that we just talked about, right, to describe. it For us, it's making sure that we either have a partner or we have the physical capabilities uh, to offer consolidation, deconsolidation, cross-docking, you know, uh, a large, secure um, yard, right, drop yard. Um, and we can do that across our portfolio of customers. So not just pharma or not just retail or not food and beverage, but everybody uh, and all the verticals that we service can can benefit from that investment. Yeah, it makes it, I feel like it has to be customer driven to an extent, right? There's not a ton of like Mexico data where you can say like, this is the $2 trillion freight market and I'm going to take a 1% of that for higher freight market and convert that into, you know, X amount of profit. And there, I feel like it's like you get an opportunity from a customer. Hey, this is what I want you to maybe do. And then you just kind of build out from, from that into that trial and error. Um, that's how I think about the investment is it, you can't really just like guess. No. Yeah. And it, I bet there's some data that you guys have, right, or have access to. A little bit. <laughs> in, in terms of import filings or, you know, whatever it is, right? And I think you'll be able to see from that. Um, and if you you mine that a little bit, you're going to say, oh, this is where I really should be focused on from an investment standpoint, right? Because that's, let's say, face it, your volume drives some of that from a decision standpoint. All right, let's go off topic for just a minute, okay? So we've only got five minutes left, so we need to be conservative here. But this is the Future of Freight Festival, so we got to talk about the future of freight. What is the future of freight, right, from either from a technology perspective or whatever? So the way to answer this question, kind of give me your idea of where do you see the freight markets changing over the next five to ten years? Again, this is fun. We're just guessing here. None of us know. But where do you see the freight markets changing and... How do you see technology playing a role in that? How does technology shift the industry? 
right? You know, if we go back, you know, a couple of decades, ELDs finally started to come into play, right? What, late 90s, I think? So it was, and that's over time had a very big change on the industry. So what is, what, what, what's, what's the next change? What's the future of freight? I'll take that one. All right. Go Please first. give it to us. No, so, you know, when I just think in general, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of smarter people than me that have said this, but, you know, freight brokerages is highly competitive. You know, you see majority of some of the biggest freight brokerages out here all came from a shitty comp plan, right? Like someone essentially had a, you know, they thought they brought in this business and then they got their feet took out from underneath them and said, well, I can go build this on our own. So I don't see there's going to, I don't think there's going to be a huge like consolidation in the marketplace just because there's so much opportunity to kind of do it or create a new business. Um, but from a technology standpoint, it, it just more and more systems have to be commingling connected. So, you know, I think that there's just going to be more enhancement how those are communicating, whether it's like a third party vendor that just does the services for you or, you know, getting that piece of it, because it's just, even today we have all these systems and like none of them ever talk. And it seems like when you ask about it, IT resources are constrained and the people who do those, like the vans in between seem like they're hard to reach (laughs) or it's expensive. So I definitely think there could be probably an area in that, that that might, we might see some better uh, automation within. Yeah, I, I think automation for sure. And I would say the theme there is we will see driverless trucks um, and there will be a privatization of some of the road systems in, in our country. Um, I think about the Turnpike 6 system from Harrisburg to Chicago. Uh, the state of Ohio does not own the Turnpike in, in Ohio. It's owned by a private company. And, and I think you'll see the ability to create dedicated lanes on the fly, similar to like if you've ever been to Honolulu, they you know move the lanes in and out, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think you'll see automation from from that. Now, will it create more capacity? You know, like we all, I, I haven't heard anybody talk about the driver shortage lately. Well, you know, Fake news. We're, we're still going to have a driver shortage, right? Because we have a whole group of people who were born in the '60s, like I was, who are going to age out in the next ten years, and they're not going to. They're not going to be in the workforce at all, let alone, you know, driving a truck. So I think a, a capacity challenge is going to be there. And then I think the final thing is more about technology, right? And, and the friction, you know, unfortunately, you can say what you want. This will be my convey, convoy con, comments. There we go. They were a SaaS operator who tried to be a freight broker. And if they would have just stuck to being a SaaS model and taking friction out of the system and not borrow money to pay drivers to move freight, they'd still be a business today. And that model will work. And I think it's the right combination of, you know, some of the vendors who are here and probably some who aren't here who will reduce the friction. And those freight brokers that adopt that technology will be the ones that really survive because margins are going to get thinner and thinner because transparency of rate is common. It, it, it's here, right? It's, it's, right? it's not like it's common. Transparency of rate is here. Yeah, and, and I think too, like we're going to, I think people are going to continue to demand that consumer-like experience too, right? You know, you have that consumer experience. Like, I order a package. I know where it is. I know all the stops that it's being made, where I get the updates, and that's great, right? Five stops away. Right, five <laughs> stops away. Oh, I see it. It just passed the neighbor's house, right? And I think that that experience is going to continue to just be demanded in, you know, our world, that's right? Cool. In, in that in that B2B world, in the industrial world, I think it's going to be uh, demanded. So some way we'll, we'll slowly get there, whether that's consolidating, getting all the systems to talk to each other, right? You know, 
um, automation. So it'll be interesting to see where it all goes. But anyways, gentlemen, thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'll see you both during the rest of the conference. We've got a lot more Freightways Conference uh, content coming, so stay tuned. And uh, we have the JB Hunt Party coming uh, tonight around 6.30. So we'll see you all then. Have a fantastic rest of your day.